0: I'm Tara McMullen, and you're listening to What Works, the show that explores how to navigate the 21st century economy without losing your humanity. At the end of this month, there's a relatively good chance that UPS employees who are members of the Teamsters Union will go on strike. If this is news to you, know that it was also news to me. I learned about what could be the largest strike against a single company from Adam Johnson at The Column. Of course, a strike at any of the delivery service companies would disrupt the flow of goods through the economy. It would create headaches and hassle. As Johnson notes, that's the point. By withholding labor and messing with the usual course of business, workers force a company to negotiate. This is the chief power workers have if a company isn't readily willing to bargain in good faith. However, Johnson points out, the media don't report on strikes in a way that focuses on the workers and their exercise of the one power they have. The media report on it from the point of view of us. Instead of centering the underpaid, overworked UPS worker, writes Johnson, the person centered is the holiest of the holiest, the consumer, the protagonist of reality. If UPS workers strike, the headlines warn, consumers are in for a rough ride. And yeah, that's true. But again, the hassle is the point. Journalists have an option. They can either point to solidarity actions that consumers could take to support the strike, or they can instruct consumers on how best to keep consuming. Any guess which approach media outlets overwhelmingly choose? ABC. Always. Be. Consuming. While reviewing Mark Fisher's book Capitalist Realism for a podcast interview, the theme that stuck out most to me was consumption. Fisher argues that because we've so fully integrated the identity of consumer into our notion of self, it's impossible to imagine a system of political economy that doesn't continue to facilitate our access to cheap goods on demand. Other components of late capitalism feel a bit more contingent. The stock market, investment banks, heck, even the student loan infrastructure. But it's hard to imagine a life in which you can no longer waltz into a Target at 9.45 p.m. to pick up a $10 t-shirt with some climate-friendly graphic on it. Our right to buy what we want to buy might be the most inalienable of our rights today. Our right to buy is what kept stores open during the first phase of the pandemic and created massive growth in online shopping, which then led to hellish working conditions for warehouse workers and delivery drivers. Our right to buy inspired the bipartisan relief bills that funneled money into the wallets of every American. While it's nice to think that money was intended to keep food on tables and roofs over heads. The practical impact of the relief money was sustaining consumption. Our right to buy is weaponized against efforts to increase the minimum wage or provide universal health care. It's easy to get people and politicians to rally against anything that might lead to a small increase in prices think we have to ask ourselves whether we're more valuable to the economy as producers of value or as consumers of stuff. And for all the hand-waving about the dignity and importance of work, it's clear to me that we value most people more for what they buy than for what they make. Consumption is the language of our political economy. So when we talk about capitalist realism, We're not talking about the pervasiveness of some abstract system of exchange. We're talking about the ways our inalienable right to buy defines our culture, our politics, our families, and all of the other institutions we hold dear. It seems impossible to imagine a future in which that isn't so. But Fisher offers other ways to think about capitalist realism, too. First, he references a phrase attributed to Jameson and Zizek, that it is easier to imagine the end of the world than it is to imagine the end of capitalism. Fisher writes, quote, that slogan captures precisely what I mean by capitalist realism, the widespread sense that not only is capitalism the only viable political and economic system, but also that it is now impossible even to imagine a coherent alternative to it. Later, he describes capitalist realism as dream work and a kind of memory disorder. Capitalist realism, Fisher writes, entails subordinating oneself to a reality that is infinitely plastic, capable of reconfiguring itself at any moment. This is what happens every time a social movement antithetical to capitalism, or at least consumer capitalism, is re-appropriated as marketing messages and products to buy. And at this point, I should probably tell you that I'm wearing a t-shirt that reads, it's not feminism if it's not intersectional. That too is capitalist realism, the drive to display one's politics rather than perform one's politics. The need to own the symbols of one's values rather than enact one's values. Capitalist realism, in short, is the pervasive atmosphere that has us believing, as Margaret Thatcher once said, there is no alternative. The 19th century was full of earnest attempts to organize society differently. The early 20th century saw the perversion of those attempts. By the mid-20th century, the envisioning of an alternative to capitalist liberal democracy was almost entirely shunted to the margins. Today, I think many of us, even beyond the anti-capitalist bubble, are trying to imagine something different, but bumping up against a sort of void of imagination. Capitalist Realism, the book, ends on what is perhaps surprisingly a hopeful and encouraging note. Fisher writes, quote, The long, dark night of the end of history has to be grasped as an enormous opportunity. The very oppressive pervasiveness of capitalist realism means that even glimmers of alternative political and economic possibilities can have a disproportionately great effect. The tiniest event can tear a hole in the gray curtain of reaction which has marked the horizons of possibility under capitalist realism. From a situation in which nothing can happen, suddenly anything is possible again. Folks, I truly believe That is the situation in which we find ourselves today. Anything is possible so long as we take those tiny tears and rend them wide open. When Iggy Perillo, host of the Book Supplied podcast and founder of WSL Leadership, asked if I'd come on her show to discuss capitalist realism, I about leapt for joy. For the record, I am always available to discuss books that move me and change the way I see the world. Consider that my preemptive positive RSVP for your podcast. Anyhow, I had so much fun with this conversation that I asked Iggy if I could share it on What Works, too. So without further ado, I bring you the latest episode of Books Applied with Iggy Perillo.
1: Welcome to the Books Applied podcast presented by WSL Leadership. In this podcast, we talk about an awesome book and how to apply it to your work, sport, or life. I'm your host, Iggy Perillo. Thanks for joining me. On this episode of the Book Supplied podcast, we'll be talking about the book Capitalist Realism Is There No Alternative by Mark Fisher? And I am joined today, very excited to be joined today, in fact, by special guest Tara McMullen, the intellectual, the author, the amazing human being whose newsletter I love. Uh, Tara,
0: can you introduce yourself to these folks and we'll dive into this cool book? Absolutely. Well, I'm thrilled to be here. As you said, I'm a writer, I'm a podcaster, I'm a producer. Um, most of my work hinges around kind of defamiliarizing ourselves with work and economics and the, this landscape that we live in, which is exactly what we're going to be talking about today. Um, and when I'm not doing that, I am producing podcasts uh, with my husband in our boutique podcast production agency called Yellow House Media.
1: Fantastic. I love it. I'm so excited. So I came across this book, Capitalist Realism, through reading the dawn of everything like they reference it there mm. so that's how i came across this and then i saw you mentioning this book specifically in your newsletter and i'm like oh my god here's someone else who has read this book which is literally tiny like 80 pages and very dense and amazing i'm wondering how you first encountered this book or where how
0: this entered your your mind your world yeah well first off i stand david graeber oh my god so great <laughs> Um, but also, uh, so I found capitalist realism through my friend uh, Kate Strathman, who runs um a bookkeeping firm called Wanderwell Consulting. And she is sort of like my mentor in radical thinking and radical business. She's awesome. my she's my radical friend. Um and uh, so she mentioned it in an interview I did with her um a couple of years ago, and I picked it up and started reading. and I was just like, this is amazing in terms of theory but it's also amazing in just terms of how it's written and the the references that mark fisher makes and it's just that's how i found it and i just fell in love with it immediately
1: yes Uh, speaking of his references it opens with he uses a lot of movie references and i love Mm -hmm. movies and i love watching movies so uh he opens it up with mentioning children of men this movie from the i think early 2000s i don't remember exactly mm-hmm. 2006 i guess and uh sort of i think there's this whole genre of like the dystopian future everything's terrible kind of world and i would not seen children of men i'm like okay pause i need to go watch this my it had been recommended to me before and then i watched it i'm like oh my gosh this movie is dark and sad and he's like cool there's that and, you know this plot that's happening but the reality is like describing the world that he lives in is this like extension of capitalism to the extreme right mm-hmm. and i think that was just like a really fascinating way to enter into the world very visually of what he means by capitalist realism and he yeah. makes like,
0: Oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, I, he just makes a lot of great movie references. But yeah, carry on. <laughs> no, he does. He does. Have you read the Children of Men book? I have not. I have not. Oh, highly recommend. OK, the book. OK. <laughs> um, it's it's a little bit di- different from the movie, but they're both excellent in their own in their own right. Um, Yeah. I mean, I think that the Children of Men reference is really sort of emblematic of the whole argument that he's making throughout the book, which is that capitalism becomes this thing that is so deeply entrenched, so uh, internalized, that we stop noticing all of the absurdity that we allow to happen because of the capital system. Um, And so, you know, with children of men, it's like, oh, well, you know, society is literally grinding to a halt because there are no more children. Um, But those same sorts of themes we can see today, just in our current political moment and our current economic moment, um, the things that we allow to happen uh, and don't think a single thing of um, are really absurd sometimes, often. Oh, yeah,
1: absolutely. I think one of my favorite lines from the book is that control only works when we're complicit with it. That was like Mm -hmm. one of my most favorite lines. And because there's this huge dichotomy throughout the book between control like are we being controlled or are we controlling ourselves sort of like there's this other idea around being surveilled surveillance and then internal sort of surveillance like we internalize this sense of control and surveillance in our lives and it's, it's fine it's just how we do it that's what's you know we accept this all things all these things as part of capitalist realism and the reality of this world that we can't escape we don't understand a way out of, or we don't understand another alternative. I guess is really how he phrases it.
0: Yeah. So he's drawing on Foucault and Deleuze when he talks about surveillance and control. And so um, uh, Foucault talked about um, the uh, he talked about the the surveillance society um, specifically in reference to like the idea of the panopticon, which was a circular, The idea was it's a circular prison with uh, cells all around the outer. Circle facing inward, and then a guard tower in the middle. And the idea was that everyone could be watched all the time, but the inmates wouldn't actually even know if there was anyone in the guard tower. Um, and so, through the the image of the panopticon, we can sort of start to uh, notice how the out the external surveillance starts to become internal surveillance. And so from there, then, Deleuze uh, kind of turned more the surveillance society into the control society. And that that's the move that he makes, where instead of being externally surveilled or externally controlled, we are now internally controlled. Um, and as I was reviewing the book again for, for this conversation, uh, when he was talking about sort of the pervasive atmosphere is the phrase he uses of capitalist realism. I was starting to think about another book that was written a few years later than Fisher's book, um, which is called Psychopolitics by the philosopher Byung-Chul Han. And that one is all about that sort of internalization of the managerial uh, surveillance control, like how do I make myself the best worker that I can be in this system Uh, kind of situation. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think for anyone who has kind of agonized over whether they're productive enough, or efficient enough, or whether they've done enough or achieved the right things, like, that's, that is the narrative of capitalist realism, that pervasive atmosphere, the control society component of it. Absolutely. Like, we are so, like, a part of the system,
1: and we can't disentangle from it in a way that it is internalized and so we are living this reality that we see externally and we don't necessarily like externally but we've still pulled it into ourselves like we he really talks about how you can say like oh i don't like it and as long as you have sort of this like veneer of denial ability of not liking it then you then you just go on and do whatever you want because you've already said you didn't like it and so check done now you're just cruising along in this capitalist realist world Anyway, but you don't worry. You said you didn't like it. So it's a, it's all fine now. Like that's like the only I mean, he talks a lot about protests, but that's like sort of the low level protests that we accept to be, you know, good enough. Right. It's good enough. If you said you yeah. don't like it. Keep going.
0: Yeah. Well, in addition to like saying, oh, I don't like it there are products that we can buy that prove that we don't like it, right? Right. So he refers to that as uh, interpassivity, which is a term of, I'm totally forgetting the dude's name, but whatever, interpassivity. So it's this idea that um, the things that we buy uh, can perform actions for us, art that performs actions for us rather than us performing those actions. uh, those actions. Um so, you know, he cites Wally as an example of this, the film Wally, he cites like the Live Aid concerts, you know, Bono's red products which were big at the time that he was writing, but now we might think about like all of the direct to consumer brands that are focused on being super mission driven, those are still capitalist enterprises that feed us over and over again. Buy stuff, buy stuff, buy stuff. If you buy this, then you're supporting the national parks. You're supporting uh, the fight against climate change. You're supporting da-da-da-da-da, and all of that consumption is really just reproducing the status quo. And again, that was kind of one of my takeaways um, as I was reviewing the book, is just how much of the capitalist, realist... um, sort of framework that he builds is around our identities as consumers first. Um, and at one point, he he talks about how the public has been transformed into consumers. Um, and I think it's that that point of view of being the consumer that makes it so difficult to imagine an alternative.
1: Yeah, that's our role, is propagating yet being a part of this whole system yeah well it's basically one of his lines is that like the the fantasy being that western consumerism far from being intrinsically implicated in a system of global inequalities could itself solve them all we have to do is buy the right products like here we are problem solved Buy the right things and he does talk right before that about live eight which was a protest against poverty and he's like well who uh, duh. Yeah. Who's for pro- poverty? This is like ridiculous. He kind of pulls out a lot of these sort of examines these things that we do and magnifies them to the point of how ridiculous they really are, which it really is just uncovers the ridiculousness that's underlying so many of these. Yeah. Live aid, just buy the right product, this thing, that thing. Say you don't like it, carry on, you know, a little bit, buy your way out of it a little bit. I'm like, Ugh. Yeah. How do you see this playing out in terms of what? you do i guess right so we're basically we're painted Mm -hmm. into this corner like we're in the system we can't imagine a different system we can't like just buy the right things we can't just say we don't like it so so what then i guess really is kind of the tiny little question right
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I think that Fisher's argument is really built around um and, and you see this replicated through all sorts of, of critical theory and cultural theory, but the idea that capital the capitalist system uh keeps us from uh acting toward meaningful political involvement. Um and you know, I've written before about how busyness, so like that worker bee internalized managerial kind of mindset, um, busyness has a function in the economy. And one of the functions of busyness is to keep us uninvolved in politics. Poverty is such a great example of this because there are countless studies of how to reduce or eliminate poverty. We actually know how to political will that's missing it's not money it's not uh, it's not like big unanswerable questions we know exactly how to do it and we don't um and we don't because we would rather spend our money on concert tickets or buying products instead of engaging in the political system and the political changes that would need to happen um so but in terms of like the everyday for me you know, one of the things that I, uh, one of the things that I do to be conscious of this in, in the everyday is thinking about what I am feeling compelled to buy. Just super simple. Like if, if a big piece of this is our identity as consumers, then, well, I can start with my consumer identity as a way to, if not push back, um, cause I don't know how much individual power I have, but as a way of like, at least being conscious of the systems that I exist in, you know, when I'm wanting to buy a new pair of jeans or I want a new piece of jewelry, or I want this, or I want that, I have to ask myself why, why do I want that? It's okay to want the thing like that's fine, but who suggested or what suggested that I wanted that thing? Was it, is it an ad that's been following me all around social media? Um, Is it that that brand got really good at appealing to quote people like me, right? (laughs) Am I wanting to buy this thing because of what it says about me? Um, Am I wanting to buy it because I'm tired and, you know, Burnt out and want something that's going to help me feel a little bit better. That's a really useful piece of information too. So anytime I'm I'm thinking about spending money at this point, I'm really trying to locate where that desire to consume comes from, and that doesn't always change my buying decisions, although. It, It does, Um, but that makes the system visible. And part of what is going on with capitalist realism, with just sort of this whole like milieu of systems that we find ourselves in, is that we don't see them. You know, uh, Fisher talks about it as being naturalized. So we've come to believe that this is just the way things are. This is just how things work. This is how it always was and how it always will be. You know, he talks about how capitalism subsumes both history and the future. Um, And so if I can make those systems visible to myself, then then in that very small, personal yet political way, I'm able to... I'm able to question, you know, I'm able to question that system for myself and I can't always escape it. I, uh, most of the time I can't escape it. Right. Cause I got to pay the bills and I got to do this and I got to do that, but at least I can see it. And I truly think that seeing it is like the first step.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. He talks about uh, one of Margaret Thatcher's um, slogans: "There is no alternative," right? Yep. And that, which like, kind of encapsulates this whole process, like the idea that there is no alternative. But to even look at a very personal level, like, wait, I actually, I there is an alternative here. I have a different choice I can make. I am an agent with some you know, locus of control in this system, right? Versus the, there is no alternative. And like, it becomes an acronym later, like the, you know, T-I-N-A. I'm like, oh, that's what that means. (laughs) There is no alternative. And to tell people that there is no alternative is one thing, but to live in a system where you can't get your brain around imagining another alternative, it is an act of resistance to then think that there are alternatives. Like that little piece, I think what you were just saying is how to, maybe not necessarily like protest or demonstrate, but like, to subvert the system in very personal ways on a very like minuscule, granular day-to-day level. I see this thing, you know, we're bombarded by ads constantly if we're online or literally out in the world. Every other bumper sticker is a, you know, (laughs) like a marketing for something or someone. And to think that I have, I could make other choices. I have, there are alternatives out there. Maybe it's like the, I think you're right. Like first step is to be aware, but, also a pretty radical first step within this entire concept of there is no alternative.
0: yeah. well, I'm glad you brought up Thatcher because you know the it it's really easy, again, you know, with this idea that capitalism subsumes history, it's really easy to believe that things have always just been this way. But you know, I don't know how old you are. I'm 40. Um, I can remember growing up when things actually weren't that way, right? Things weren't this way in the early and mid 90s. It was still capitalism. It was still neoliberalism, but it had not taken hold in the way that it has today. And the reason for that is because Thatcher and Reagan in the 70s and 80s were going through the systematic deregulation and um, sort of disentangling government from all of these different areas that up until that point in time we had relied on government for right um the the 40s 50s 60s were a time when the government was you know making jobs for people it was making sure that you know education was was being done in a certain way there was that you know factories Uh, we were starting, you know, they were starting to um, clean up factory runoff and things like that. Um, And then the Reagan knights and the Thatcherites came in and really started to systematically dismantle all of those expectations of government to put them in the hands of uh, private companies. And that really, I mean, that's a 50-year process. That's not very long, right and so yeah there is an alternative we were living it before margaret thatcher said that um and i think it's just it's it is crazy to believe that there aren't other ways to do things we've seen that there's other ways to do things one of the way i i love the end of the book he actually leaves the book on this strangely hopeful note um Um, unexpected right like oh, where'd this come from (laughs) yeah but what, looking at it today, you know, I, th- I reading that like last paragraph, it felt so prescient in that he's talking about how uh, even a small kind of hiccup in the system could have an outsized effect on how we think about what's possible. And I think, oh God, well that's exactly what happened with COVID, right? COVID gave us a hiccup that made people ask. Why don't we take care of people? Why don't we intervene as a society on things like poverty and public health and all of these different things? And did bad stuff happen in those years too? Absolutely. Was polarization increased? Absolutely. But a huge segment of the American public is thinking about alternatives in a way that it was not three, four years ago. So I, mm-hmm. I mean, I mm-hmm. it's sad. And also, it's incredible that he was so on it then. And, you know, obviously, we don't know what the future holds. But I, you know, I think I think there is reason to be hopeful, um, if not because things are great now, but because people are waking up and recognizing that change is possible and that we could do things differently.
1: Absolutely. I would say that is really so this underpinning silver lining of like the great resignation so-called, right? And yes. people are like, oh, I actually don't have to tolerate an environment. Like personally, as a human, I don't have to tolerate a work environment that doesn't serve me on this very kind of basic human level in a way. Like, yeah, I can make money with it. But like, ugh. like, I I don't feel I don't feel good about it. Right. Like as a human, like it's not feeling sustainable. It doesn't feel healthy. You know, oh, there's a lot of reasons people describe these things, but which basically it comes down to like, oh the systems as they are portrayed through this organization I'm working for, this company, whatever it is, this business are really mirrored. I see this a lot. Like, well, oh, this is just how we do things. You know, the sort of acceptance of culture, which is not the same as plausible deni- deniability of perpetuating the culture, right? Like we are just yep. accepting that this is how things are done. And suddenly, oh, wait, no one wants to work for me. I- oh, I need to increase wages. But like, wait, still no one is working here. Like still I'm understaffed. I can't How much do i have to pay people i'm gonna run out of business you know like whatever like i've seen this happen to um a lot of smaller businesses because they're a little more transparent right like if you have a big multinational you know the mcdonald's down a couple blocks for me was like oh like you'd see the um now hiring at this much this much this much You, you see this little number go up on their billboard now they they're not saying they're hiring but the wendy's a couple blocks further is like hey start your career at wendy's i'm like Okay, like, uh, tell like what's like offer me a number on your billboard, you know, your sign out front. Tell me how much you're paying me per hour. Like that's still everywhere, right? Like the hourly rates. I don't know if you see it around. Like work for this place. Here's hiring bonus, starting rates. That number is much more present in a way that I don't think was before the pandemic, which is an interesting twist on oh, like transparency, right? I think people Mm -hmm. there's like everything's hidden underneath, but then there's transparency, and it is like. Your hourly rate for a starting wage is suddenly much more transparent in the world, which helps people shop around and buy, but that doesn't mean, oh, like, oh, this one pays more than that one. Is that still worth it to me? Like, I still don't know, right, if that's gonna be serving me or a good place to be or work or spend my time, you know?
0: Yeah, yeah. The the calculus on what kind of job is a good job to have, or what kind of job I will accept, has completely changed in the last three years, and we see pushback from the capitalist realist uh, status quo. Right, that there's a quote unquote labor shortage. There's not a labor shortage. There is a shortage of jobs that pay enough for a human being to survive in this world. That's what there's a shortage of. And, you know, it's really easy to get sucked back into that labor shortage, labor shortage story. Um, and that's like, that's the realism piece. It's like, oh, well, right. People don't want to work anymore. People are lazy. Other people, you know, other people are the problem. But what if it's not? What, if, <laughs> what you know, what if? People can't afford to take a job that doesn't pay their bills, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And why is that a worker's problem and not a business's problem? And Fisher talks a lot about that too, the way that individuals are pathologized as like not fitting into the system, not doing what they're supposed to be doing. Whereas the system is very rarely critiqued, at least, you know, out in mainstream media, um, in terms of like how it has created the situation that we have, um, and that people are merely, you know, trying to deal with it. So I'm, I'm so glad you brought up the the great resignation in the labor shortage bit, because it's, again, it's just a perfect encapsulation of what happens when we don't make the systems visible. Absolutely. And I think it's, uh, I saw this great,
1: I'm sure, post on social media somewhere that was no one wants to work today. Everyone's lazy. Everyone's a bum. And it was like a newspaper article from like 1930. Like none of this oh, yeah. is also new or like, oh my gosh, I can't believe there's this it's crazy labor shortage. Like we're not going to, we're going to to shut down. The economy's going to grind to a halt. It's like from 1965, you know, like whatever, yep. like the, these are not new sentiments, right? This is, but also what you were saying about Margaret Thatcher, like the, uh, Fisher says basically, I'm like, I lived through the 80s and 90s also. And that Uh, socialist realism was a viable possibility until the mid eighties. Then we're just like, Mm -hmm. okay, this is actually not a viable alternative anymore. We're just, we're going all capitalism all day. Everyone else is kicked to the curb. It's like a thought exercise. Like what else would you do besides capitalism? Like, cool, enjoy your thought experiment. And we're going to carry on over here with capitalism and the labor shortage and the, you know, the systems of capitalism put into a court. Environment where people are the cogs. You know, I was talking to someone recently who's like, "Yeah, I want to do this thing, but I think I—I I don't know if I want to be a cog in that wheel." I'm like, "That is what you would be." You know, at that place, doing that, you know, whatever. We can we can say that, but the reality is that's changing maybe our decisions on a personal level. But the bigger reality is that wheel still needs some cogs. Someone's going to fill them. You know, like it's going to happen. It's going to change. It's going to like make it sign say you're paid a dollar more an hour or whatever it is to sort of entice people in like i haven't seen any of those mcdonald's or wendy shut down like they're still they somehow still seem to be working like okay and those are obviously big you know corporate mm-hmm. m- multinationals but there are i think even on the smaller personal level i think that's where you see change happening the smaller businesses have closed down and that's like the pandemic like there's complicated pieces of a pandemic right that that Certainly. affect whether a small business can keep running or not like their overhead is much lower everything is just smaller I went to another a smaller shop in, nearby where i live and you know you walk in and suddenly it's like the owner working the shop right when you're like mm-hmm. oh you used to have two shops so i assume you had more staff before but now you have one shop and the owner is running it like oh i see that this is affected you know their economics have affected you and how you operate things and this is a great shop and i'd buy everything you had but i'm not going to because i'm going to be a conscious consumer and not just buy you know like crazy but we see we see changes happening on these small scales in big scale, it looks like you know the billboard going up and down, you know, like uh, trying to entice people in. But on small scales, we do see change happening around who is working in in the mm-hmm. shop, you know, the small business owner shop. Who is going to work for them? Who is going to be engaged in that process? And I think that has to come around to anti capitalist leadership, which is one of my areas of like interest: is how to coach and prepare leaders to not operate in this capitalist mindset of making (laughs) employees into cogs and wheels, right? Like that, separating that out can be done at this sort of small business leadership level too.
0: Yes. I'm so glad to hear that that's something that you're working on. It is absolutely something that I'm working on too. How do we excavate these systems from the ways we manage people, the ways we, you know, work together, the ways we, yeah, just... So excited to hear that. yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I think that small business example is something that's that's really interesting here because we, as part of our American myth, we have such a we we give small businesses such a sacred position in our economy when unfortunately, there's a huge segment of small business that is some of the most exploitative uh, enterprises, ventures that are out there because, you know, they've, they've been able to sort of squeeze in between the cracks and take up surplus labor and, um, you know, and, and pay these ridiculously low wages. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, there's, there's other reasons that businesses are struggling now than just, oh, we used to be able to exploit our workers and now we can't, but- there is a huge segment of small business that used to be able to exploit their workers and now they can't. And that's something for us to really examine. Um, Fisher talks about this too, where uh, we are more likely to identify as capitalists than we are as workers. And small business owners find themselves in this, this middle where um, instead of being able to say, you know, to kind of put themselves in the perspective of someone that they're employing for, you know, 750 an hour or 1050 an hour, um they're constantly thinking from that capitalist perspective. And and I don't mean that, I don't mean that pejoratively. I just mean that that's, that's how we're trained to think. Like I've got to think about the business, the business, the business, the profit line, the the PNL, whatever it might be, instead of thinking about the people and, and what we're doing together as a business. Um, and that's, that's something, you know, in, in my work, it's something that I try to really, um, kind of tease out for people is that, you know, as, as small business owners, as freelancers, as independent workers, gig workers, we're workers first. We, you know, and are there, are there components of being a capitalist that we also take on just by virtue of existing in the system? Absolutely. But if we can position ourselves in our own minds as workers first and find solidarity with the people that work with us then that can be a really radical place um, to create change on a business level which is you know that has ripple effects out into the rest of the economy absolutely
1: Uh, some of the work i do is with businesses changing their internal policies right Mm -hmm. and so many businesses have policies and specifically for me it's around uh policies it's something i've been working on lately a lot of Mm. businesses have this classic discipline policy like really reminiscent of Foucault again, like this guy who's out there telling us like we need to discipline people by punishment. Right. And intellectually. And the reality is he was reflecting this world where you need to sit in a certain way and be disciplined and mm-hmm. show, and maintain internal discipline or you will be punished. And punishment is this motivator, but also this like hanging over your head all the time. Right. As this yep. way. And so so many businesses have this sort of classic. um it's called progressive discipline, which is very ironic, but it's you get your verbal warning, then you get your written warning, then you get fired, you know, and sometimes there's some coaching in there. Sometimes there's some, you know, whatever, blah, blah, blah. But that's the policy of, of discipline, like the, within an organization in many places versus mm-hmm. I think other places it's just like, well, you just you get fired or we try to work around not getting sued for, you know, discrimination or whatever, blah, blah, blah. And so if you pull apart this system and how you're trying to maintain discipline within your organization, this is a huge place where owners, imagine, especially small business owners, right? Or smaller nonprofits where the board is super connected or just these have a huge opportunity to make really radical change in terms of, wait, I need to actually treat a person like a person and not just walk through these steps so I can fire them. I'm like, or you need to fire them right now because you don't trust them. Right. Because they're not because they're not being a good enough cog and a good enough wheel. Like trust is actually more important to how you operate in a business and how a business feels and how your energy is used. Right. Like I've talked to so Mm -hmm. many business owners They're like, oh, I'm struggling with this employee because they do this and not that and blah, blah, blah and i'm like at the end of the day it's you don't trust them to do the right thing so either we can work on repairing trust which is a very different discipline policy than written warning verbal warning fired or we can like fire them now and <laughs> like start over and hire with trust in mind versus hiring with resume productivity right because we hire for productivity mm-hmm. we hire for sometimes we're like oh we're not hiring for productivity now we're hiring for runway or like we think that they'll be able to get here with our you know amazing mentorship or whatever along the way, which is still productivity in mind. Like, oh, we think the return on investment of hiring this human will pay off for the business down the road. Great. Instead of that, we could look at, I need to have people I trust that will do, that will communicate and trust, you know, these pieces that are really amorphous and really difficult to pull out of, I think, a resume fundamentally. You know, someone <laughs> could say, I studied communications. You're like, uh, cool. I don't know. You know, but the reality is, at a human level, your policies are sort of this backbone within many organizations. And they are just assumed like, oh, this is just how you do it. This is how you do conflict within a business. This is how you do these things without examining them and creating those sort of little pockets of revolution fundamentally, which is possible.
0: Totally. Yes. I I love that you're working on disciplinary policy. Yeah. I mean, I think that... Um... I talk a lot about how goals create culture and it happens through the way values get operationalized. And so, if the company's values are stated one thing and operationalized a different way through policy, whether it's disciplinary or whatever, then yeah, you're going to have a, a culture that breeds distrust, that reinforces hierarchy, all of these different things. And you've got to be able to create the operations in a business that um kind of build that radical foundation from the bottom up. Um, the other thing that I was thinking about uh, when you were talking about sort of resumes is that a lot of hiring, I think, happens, um, yes, from productivity, but also from a perspective of conformity who can we hire that will do things the way we want them to be done and then businesses get or you know managers get frustrated when people aren't thinking out of the box they're not taking initiative they're not doing this that or the other thing it's like well you hired someone who you know made themselves into a cog for your machine of course they're not going to take initiative of course they're not going to be creative You've tried to create stability in your organization at the the risk at the cost of innovation and creativity. It's like you can't have both. It's just not going to happen. Absolutely, it makes me think of the this
1: very dicey term cultural fit, right? When we're trying to find people to fit within an organization and organizational identity, which I love. I also do work on like your. Stated values and your actual values and like that's like it sounds like a gap I know that you work within too. Like, oh here's yeah. what we say we do. And it's like the posters, the the you know, list of mission and vision and values on the website. But then you go and talk to the people, like, cool, well, how do you operate here? What is it what actually guides your decisions? I talk a lot about like your decision making on a day-to-day basis, which forms your habits, your habits are that fossil record of your values in action. So if we look at your decision-making, we're sort of at this middle point, but if we look at the habits of how you operate in this business, that is your business's values, also culture. And so if we're looking at cultural fit, we want people to like slide into this space, yeah, we're hiring for someone we think is going to do what we want to do without a lot of effort, right, on our part. Exactly. And so like, ooh, (laughs) then they do what we want to do without, yeah. I, that's exactly right. Sacrificing initiative, creativity, these different things. Or then they do take initiative, and you're like, "Whoa, I didn't say you <laughs> could do that." Oh my god! Like, why are you off the you know rails over here? What's going on? You know, it's. Uh, I mean, there is there's so much more room for nuance in there. And again, the classic, I think, American system is like it's all a dichotomy. They're right or they're wrong. They're fitting right. in or they're not. You know, there's obviously this gray zone, but that's I think the gray zone of like learning and growing as an anti capitalist leader and as a creating a workplace that is something that actually works for the people and is supportive and meaningful,
0: I think, in a different way. Yeah, and to kind of bring things back to like the individual level too, because um, all of this kind of organizational change, societal change starts with the individual. Um, I think the the difference between stated values and, and sort of lived values or the values that are actually being applied Happens on an individual level too, and it's one of the reasons I focus so much on making systems visible. Because you can say, "Well, I value equality in my community. I value justice." But if you if you keep operating within the systems that we have without intentionality, without uh, you know recognizing how those systems are working against justice, working against equality, well, then are those really your values? And, you know, kind of to the the psychopolitics idea like that's the thing that we need to notice and defamiliarize and uh, Han talks about de-psychologized, which I, I don't think that's probably a great word to use, but like there's a mindset shift, right? Like we have to recognize that doing things the way that we've thought we're supposed to do them is probably not aligned with the values that we have. And it doesn't mean that we can be you know, 100% perfect anti-capitalist. There's no such thing. Um, but it does mean, I think, that we can make more intentional, make more recognizable the ways in which our actual values tie to our actual actions.
1: The, the actual values that we are actually living <laughs> in yes. the moment, not those aspirational values, which in my world is always us uh, integrity <clears throat> and then one thing based on a weird experience you had as a young person, right? Those are your values. We know that. Every organization has that. Like that's what their poster is going to say that's what their website's going to say honesty integrity and working out of your garage you know at all hours honesty integrity and you know supporting people who slip and fall in the mud because that happened to me once you know whatever it is but i think you also bring up this interesting point around what is uh expected but also like creating alternatives i think there is um yeah well, i'm just gonna read this little part about the book about yeah. how alternative and independent don't designate something out of the mainstream culture rather they are in fact the dominant styles within the mainstream. And then he goes on to talk about Kurt Cobain for a while, who's like, ugh, like I am a cliche and I know it and this is terrible, you know, whatever. But that we we say like, oh, here's an alternative system. But like like within music and, and pop culture, this is much more obvious, right? Like, oh, it's alternative mm-hmm. music. But like alternative is a genre of music, right? And we're At like the record store. Yeah. I'm like, I go to the alternative <laughs> section. So What are we talking about? You know, it becomes like uh, this beautiful window dressing label for uh, being independent and like the classic, you know, think different, like Apple slogan, like Mm -hmm. within this system, think different means buy my thing. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Like, okay, I guess this is different than the other alternative alternative again, you know, as a concept. But the reality is it's just sort of a ploy to pull you back into Mm -hmm. the dominant way of being, the dominant way of thinking, which is capitalist realism.
0: Yeah. You know, I think that um, folks, when they think about there being an actual alternative or like the opposite of there is no alternative, they're looking for a thing, right? They're looking for a system that's already been proven, a system that already works. What is the the framework that we're going to use to rebuild society? And I, I think David Graeber talks about this quite a bit. There is no alternative in that we don't know what it looks like yet. We have lots of great theory for thinking about it, for dismantling what we have and and creating constraints on what could be. But just because we don't know what the alternative is, doesn't mean that there isn't one. And it doesn't mean that we can't work together to find it. But the actual alternative is not going to be a genre of music or a type of clothing or a section that you can shop on Amazon, right? If it's, if it is a commercial product that you can buy, um, and even, I mean that even metaphorically, it's not actually alternative. I love that line. I use it quite often. Um, (laughs) but Um, Yeah, I I think the the thing about what is truly alternative is that it is not something that we can recognize, but working toward it doesn't require that we can recognize it yet.
1: Right. I think it speaks back to, I think in the dawn of everything, Graeber talks about there were other systems there are other systems out there and that book is a little bit of a historical survey Mm -hmm. of other systems other ways of operating other political formations other reasons why things were formed the way they were in different cultures really around the globe in different ways and it's beautiful and amazing to be like oh yeah there are other ideas out there and we might actually have to revert to how we feel about things like as a way of guiding ourselves versus how we think about things i think there's this mm-hmm. we like to intellectualize and be like oh well here's like the my cost benefit analysis which is capitalism and i'm going to find a better system than capitalism using the system of capitalism like yes <laughs> uh, you, uh, like does not compute a little bit because we need to separate from that system of even you know the the basic ways we think we are making decisions and i love annie duke's work on decision making and it is very mm-hmm. much about actually you know this cost benefit analysis isn't right like there are other factors involved and some of them are forecasting and thinking how it will feel in the future and some of them are looking to the past a little bit but if we look too much to the past we're just going to recreate the past right like we are we are gonna re-envision these cycles again with like oh but i did it slightly differently i did it the alternative way which is that section in the music store that is already labeled for me that's handy you know uh so we have to dismantle things, like maybe a piece at a time. And I think it's scary to people, right? To be like, I'm gonna do, my business is gonna be a cooperative. I don't know what that means, but it's not gonna, we're not gonna have hierarchies here. I'm like, really, you're not gonna have hierarchies here. You're gonna be cooperative. Tell me more about what that looks like. Tell me more about, you know, wh- how that is in reality and how you're gonna train all of your your people that are with you to engage at that level. And there are obviously cooperatives out there. There are alternative business structures mm-hmm. out there. Like that is a literal real thing that happens and people still have to sort of get their brain around I'm just a piece of this like wait i'm not who's the boss here you know like there are divisions and structures like in place like stuff does get done like if it was just a free-for-all you it wouldn't work even within this like constrained version in a capitalist world right so but you still have to train people into that i think in some ways or that's who you attract in i mean both right you attract in people who are interested in the non-dominant capitalist view of operation non-hierarchical view i think is an easy one to like label to put on there And yet you still have to train people and yourself. Like he really goes, spends a lot of time talking about how, yeah, we think putting new people in banking regulation roles will make banking better. But reality is the system of banking is the problem. Like that's like the system of regulation itself is the problem. Not putting in the right people all the time, which we can say about a lot of systems out there in our world, right? Especially around punishment, crime, like those systems. Like we just put the right people in there. It's going to be fine also the system is doing what it's designed to do capitalism is doing what it's designed to do and to find those points of you know truly alternative truly radical truly like meaningful protest might be very personal but depending on how much power or influence you have on the people around you there is still room to
0: influence the people around you in very positive ways i think that when we're talking about like alternatives or like reimagining things it starts with questions, right? It doesn't start with answers. Um, So like the, the, should this be a owner, uh, uh, you know, an owned business with a hierarchy or should this be a cooperative? It's like, well, what could it look like? to have a business that operates on consensus instead of hierarchy? What could it look like if the owner shared profits equally among employees? What what other questions will we need to ask? What other other areas will we need to rethink? It's the same thing on a societal level too. Just starting to ask questions. Why is there poverty? why is such a big segment of our population living below the poverty level? And also, why is the poverty line as low as it is in the first place? Why is that? And not being, uh, we can't be pacified by the answers to those questions that have been supplied by the existing system. We have to look at the ways in which those, those questions are, acknowledged as real and valid. And the ways, like I said earlier, researchers are are looking at how things can be eliminated. Why is it that our minimum wage is so far below a living wage? Why is it that we're willing to roll back child labor laws in the year of our Lord 2023? Um, You know, all, but just asking those questions, recognizing the absurdity and recognizing that it doesn't have to be that way. We can make different choices um, is so, it's so key. And yeah, it happens on an individual level. It happens on a business level. It happens on a community level and it happens on a society level too.
1: Beautiful. This has been so fun talking with you. We've talked a long time. I suppose I should (laughs) need to wrap this thing up finally, but- Uh, it's been thank you so much Tara for coming in and I love that note to end on like really questions are what the best we can do in so many ways asking wondering what if why like the question why is this tricky question right the how Mm -hmm. we got to be here is like easy to answer but the why Mm -hmm. why it has to be that way is much more difficult why does it where did this come from why is this why is poverty a thing why is crime a thing why why you know like the sort of those bigger, deeper questions are worth thinking about. And the, I think those lead to really meaningful, useful ideas inspired perhaps by capitalist realism or by your own ideas of what is, what else is out there? What else is possible? How, how do I want this to feel? I think to me, like draws back into the most anti-capitalist thing you can really do is feel about something and have feelings direct some of your choices and decision-making. Not just, I feel like I should buy this, but like, how do I feel in <laughs> this system? How do I feel? about how things are working here. Anyway, this yeah. has been an awesome conversation. Any last thoughts you want to end on? I feel like all the questions are beautiful
0: <laughs> way to wrap this thing up. <laughs> yeah, you know, I think I think that's a good place to leave it. If I started talking more, I'd go for another, you know, hour or so. <laughs> Let's too. leave it there. Too.
1: That's beautiful. <laughs> Thanks so much, Tara, for talking with me today about capitalist realism. And it's been awesome chatting with you. Thank you. This is so much fun. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Books Applied Podcast. I hope you enjoyed getting to know a new book and learning how to apply its ideas to make your work, sport, or life a little bit more awesome. For more leadership education-related content, including conflict management checklists, invitations to a fun-free lunch that happens monthly, upcoming classes, webinars, and mastermind groups, please head over to wslleadership.com. Thanks, and have a great day.